Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the Encouragement Expert Podcast. We're glad you're here with us today. Let's join Pastor West Offenbaugh for an encouraging word titled, Keep Your Salvation. Praise the Lord. It's a delight to be with you today. God bless each one of you. Let's say a prayer. Father, we pray your Holy Spirit will come and uh, teach us all things. Not that we'll learn everything in one sermon, but teach us everything about this subject that we need to know and lead us into all truth. Uh, that's so that we can be yours forever and help others get across that finish line into your eternal glory. We pray this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Well, I'm preaching a powerful sermon called Keep Your Salvation. Now, salvation from sin and eternal judgment can only be found through faith in Jesus Christ. There isn't any other way. Uh, This salvation is a free gift, and those who receive it haven't earned the gift, and they haven't deserved it, but they have done several things to receive it. Now, that's important to remember. All right, so, number one, they humble themselves and admit that they're not good enough to go to heaven on the basis of their own good works. And number two, they repent of their sins. They turn from their sin and ask for God God to forgive them. And then they believe that Jesus is God in human form, and they believe that God raised him from the dead. And then they receive Christ by faith, opening the doors of their heart uh, for the entrance of his Holy Spirit. And then number five, they confess their faith publicly. Uh, we do that by water baptism. Um, but, uh, you know, the thief on the cross didn't get a chance to get baptized, but nevertheless, he spoke publicly of his faith in Christ. Because uh, if you're too ashamed of Jesus uh, to, you know, identify with him publicly, then you're not saved. So, those are the things that people do to receive salvation. Now, there's a, listen carefully, there's a demonic lie that has really permeated the body of Christ on earth. And it sounds right, but in fact, it's two lies in one. Now, here's the lie. It's a double lie. We did nothing to obtain our salvation. Therefore, we can do nothing to lose it. Now, that sounds like the truth, but it's a double lie. It's two lies in one. Now, the first lie is that you did nothing to obtain salvation. Now, surely you didn't earn it, but you did do something to receive it. You humbled yourself. You admitted your need. You repented of your sins. You believed on Christ. You received him into your life, and you publicly identified with him, unashamed to be called by his name. Now, the second lie in that sentence is that you can't do anything to lose it. And that's the once saved, always saved, eternal, unconditional eternal security doctrine, which is a heresy. And it puts people in a false sense of security, takes away their fear of the Lord, and... uh, really redefines grace, redefines salvation, and gives people a very false sense of security. And many go to hell who could have gone to heaven because of believing that lie. Now, here's the deal. Salvation cannot be lost after you get to heaven. You die in the faith, you enter into heaven, there's no way you can lose it. You've got eternal salvation. (laughs) But while you live on earth, salvation can be lost, and it is in fact obtained and then lost by millions. Now, you're much safer if you know this. See, salvation can't be lost accidentally, and we can be absolutely sure of our salvation. 
And you'll be more sure of your salvation if you understand that you can lose it because that way you'll understand how to keep it. And that's the purpose of this message, is to help you keep salvation until you cross that finish line into that eternal glory and that eternal security. All right, that's my introduction. Here's my first point. A person can get out of Christ by doing the opposite of what got them into Christ. All right, so number one, they can exalt themselves in pride, which is independence from God. Paul instructed Timothy not to let a novice, that would be like a brand new convert, be put into the office of a pastor because he said, not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Well, if you fall into the same condemnation as the devil, you're not going to heaven. You're being condemned with the devil. Now, seasoned veterans, preachers that have been in it a long time, they should read that and tremble because if, uh, see, there's many haughty and prideful uh, so-called spiritual leaders, right? Many are haughty, many are prideful. And if God is not going to excuse the prize of a novice, God isn't going to excuse the self-exaltation of a prideful veteran preacher. Now, both the Apostle James and the Apostle Peter quoted this verse, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's James 4, 6 and 1 Peter 5, 5. If grace was only, quote, quote, air quotes there, unmerited favor, all right, if grace was only unmerited favor, then God would give grace to the proud. But notice, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So many say nothing we do can cause us to lose our salvation because we have it by grace. But you see, if you're self-exalting, if you're prideful, if you're arrogant, if you do not repent, you're not going to have grace. God's not going to give grace to you. So you'll only have God resisting you. Now, secondly, they can, uh, people that, uh, I'm telling you how people get out of Christ they can choose sin and refuse to repent. Now, that's called rebellion. Uh, everybody blows it or says something wrong or thinks something wrong or does something wrong or has a bad attitude, and we don't serve Christ perfectly. But suppose God puts his finger on something and a person says, no, I'm going to have that affair. I don't care what the Bible says. I'm going to do this. I don't care what the Bible says. I'm going to steal from my boss, and I don't care what the Bible says. Well, you see, if you refuse to repent of something that God confronts and brings up as an issue, that's rebellion. And that's never covered in, in the Old Testament. That's not covered. It's not covered by the blood of Christ in the New Testament. God always sees rebellions and gives warnings. And if a person persists in rebellion and dies in it, they forfeit their salvation. But, you know, God's not going to let that happen accidentally. He'll plead with people, warn them over and over and over. All right, now thirdly, people can get out of Christ by denying the lordship of Jesus and putting their faith in some other God. You see, you still have a free will. And there are people that uh, apostatize and turn from faith in Christ, don't believe in him anymore. Well, that's idolatry. Something else becomes first in their life. Now, idolatry is never covered by the blood of Christ. There's really only two things rebellion and idolatry. Both of those would move you out from under 
the blood of Christ. Well, greed is, the Bible says, a form of idolatry because that's where money becomes your God rather than the Lord. Self could become, you could be so selfish that you're putting yourself first. Whatever's first is your God. So one good preacher friend I know always used to say, Jesus must be Lord of all or he's not Lord at all in your life. Now, fourth, people can get out of Christ if they just harden their hearts and close their hearts to the Holy Spirit. Why? Well, he's going to warn them if they cross the line into sin that he would judge, they'd be, they could repent, get back under the blood. But if they harden their hearts, of course, then they'll eventually uh, forfeit what they thought they had. And number five, they can be ashamed to be identified with Jesus and publicly deny him. Now, my second major point is that all this can easily be proven with scriptures. But first, you must realize that God has made your salvation as secure as he possibly can. Now, here's this is just wonderful good news. Think This illustration will help you a lot. When a person makes an offer to buy a house, they sign a purchase agreement and they put down what's called an earnest money deposit. It usually has to be a pretty good size monetary deposit. Then the seller has to accept the offer. Well, then the house moves moves toward closing. In other words, it's sold, but the deal isn't finalized until closing. That's the way it is with salvation. Now, the Bible says that God, you know, paid the price for our salvation. He's got all the, you know, the price to pay for it through the sacrifice of Jesus. And then he's buying us, basically, and he puts his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. That's 1 Corinthians 1.22, and it's repeated again in 2 Corinthians 5.5. So the spirit becomes the earnest money deposit, so to speak. Now, if a buyer was buying a piece of property and put down an earnest money of a half a million dollars, let's say they were buying a million dollar house and they put down half of it in an earnest money agreement. Well, they they wouldn't want to back out, would they? They wouldn't want to lose all that. But you see, God put down something so great that he can't back out and lose his own spirit. He put down his spirit as a deposit. Now, he can't make it any more secure than that. He's saying by that, I'm not going to back out of the deal. I'm in this thing. I'm putting my very spirit down as a deposit. So he can't back out. He, that's, the deposit's too big to lose. All right, so from God's side, he has made your salvation as secure as he possibly can. He's got uh, the sacrifice of Jesus is in God's bank, so to speak, uh, purchased you, and then the great earnest deposit of his own spirit. So he's not going to be backing out. But now look at this. The seller can back out no matter how large the deposit is. Let's say that uh, the seller... Uh, you, you know, the buyer puts down this big half a million dollar deposit and everything's going towards closing. And all of a sudden, the seller decides, I, I don't want to sell this. I'm going to back out. And the buyer says, we got a contract here, a legal contract. And and the, the seller says, I don't care. I, I don't want to sell it anymore. Well, then the buyer could take him to court. And he could say, we had a legal agreement here. I put the money down. And I want the property. And then you see that guy that back, the the seller that backs out of the deal would be held liable to judgment. 
Well, that's exactly the way salvation works. God can't back out of the deal. He put down too big of a deposit. But if you back out, you'll be liable to the judgment of God. And that's where the fear of the Lord comes in. Now, you see, if you thought you couldn't possibly lose your salvation no matter what you did, you really wouldn't have the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, the Bible says. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Uh, it is so important that we have a reverential fear of God. We've, if there's no consequence to any disobedience, how can we say we fear the Lord? Well, we fear what the Lord would do if we back out, but we don't have any fear that he'll back out. And so we can, we, two things can be going on. We can just be abiding in his love and be so secure uh, and, and uh, trusting in his love, complete confidence in his love. But if we start goofing off and, uh, and uh, trying to take advantage of God and uh, other people, then we need to fear God because that means we're backing out and we'd be subject to judgment. Now, my third major point is the devil likes to turn grace into a license for sin. And he does this by redefining grace as only unmerited favor. Now, when you think of grace as just unmerited favor, you're on the road to deception because real grace gives us spiritual power. So grace and power always go together. See, real grace gives us spiritual power to overcome sin and temptations, the world and the devil. So grace and power go together. But false grace is lazy and weak. Now listen carefully, it can't do anything. False grace can't do anything because it thinks if I do anything, then I'll be trying to earn my salvation by works. And so this false grace negates every command of Jesus. Jesus said that we must forgive or God won't forgive us. But proponents of this false grace immediately take issue with that. And they say, look, if we have to forgive someone, then that means we'll actually be doing something to obtain our salvation. But we're saved by grace, that not of ourselves, not of works, lest any man should boast. So they paraphrase the words of Paul in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And thus they twist the words of the apostle Paul to negate the words of the Lord Jesus. Jesus himself. Now, Paul said, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. Now, notice you don't get grace unless you have faith. But then what does the apostle James say? He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can, faith, can that faith save him? That would be a lazy faith, wouldn't it? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. James chapter 2. Now you see, it takes faith, real faith, that's not dead, to receive grace. So real faith is alive and it's active. Faith is alive and active. So is grace. Grace is alive and active. Got, got power. Now here's a proverb that, that describes people that hold to that uh, uh, hyper grace, false grace, lazy grace, I call it. Proverbs 26, 15, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He's too lazy to bring it back to his mouth. Imagine him slumped over at the table and he's got a 
potato chip and he dips it in the dip, you know, but he just slumps over on the table. He can't bring his hand back to his mouth. He's so lazy, can't do anything. Well, that's what the lazy grace uh, uh, folks end up being like, you see. They have what a grace that is so lazy, it can't do anything, see, because that would be a work. Now, I'm mocking it, okay, because I really don't like that because I love to obey Jesus Christ. I just love to obey him. And, uh, and grace gives me power to obey. And the blood of Christ covers me so that uh, God sees my imperfect obedience as perfect. As long as I'm not in rebellion or idolatry, and I'm covered, I'm having fun learning how to grow and obey. Now, uh, you see, the people that uh, have that lazy grace, uh, unforgiveness and disobedience are all excused, and grace, quote, quote, grace, their version becomes a license for sin. Now, the proponents of this false grace always say those who refuse to repent or obey were never really saved in the first place. But I would just have to say that's biblical ignorance gone to seed. The Bible says in Romans 8, 29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, foreknowledge, those whom God foreknew, foreknowledge means that God looks ahead somehow and knows your choices. He knows what you're going to choose, but he doesn't make you choose that. You say, how could he possibly do that? Well, he's God. I can't explain it. But the Bible says he knows what you're going to do before you do it. But the Bible also says he gives you a free will and let everyone who wants to take the uh, water of life freely. So God looks ahead and he knows who's going to stick with him and he knows who's not. However, on earth, now listen carefully, he treats them all the same. The same level of kindness and faithfulness and even revelations of himself is given to those who will someday forsake and betray him. He'll be just as faithful to them as he will be to someone he knows is going to stick with him. Now, so people could be used in very powerful spiritual gifts. They could, be, they could have visions of Jesus. They could do just huge works, but they could still betray him down here in this life. They could take the glory, for instance. They could uh, take God's glory and make themselves out to you know, be the source. And, and uh, boy, that's self-idolatry and rebellion too. And some of them do that. Now, I'll repeat myself, I guess. A person could say, Jesus has appeared to me several times. He treats me like a total friend. I've been used to do miracles. I've cast out demons. Well, great, good. But you could still turn from him. Now, see, he's treating you as a dear friend because he loves all people. He treated Judas with the kindness of a friend. At the Last Supper, John whispered, Who is it, Lord? And Jesus had said, One of you is going to betray me. John just leaned over and said, he, John didn't ask is it I, Master? Everybody else was asking that question, but not John. <laughs> he knew it wasn't him. <laughs> I like that, you know? When you, when, you, uh, when you love God with all your heart, you're like John. Who is it, Lord? And Jesus whispered to him, It's the one to whom I give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. And so Jesus, that was a real act of friendship, by the way, to do that. 
And so Jesus could have stood up and pointed at Judas and said, you dirty rat, I know what you're going to do. Get out of here, you lousy, filthy bum. But no, Jesus treated Judas just like a friend. Now, Judas had been used powerfully in the gifts of the Spirit. When Jesus sent those guys out, you know, they cast out demons, they healed the sick, and Judas was used by the Spirit of God. But he betrayed Jesus. Now, Jesus treated him with dignity. And when Judas came up to betray him in the garden with a kiss, Jesus said, do what you came for, friend. And he called Judas friend. Now, here's my point, friend. It's impossible for you to know if you are the one God has foreknown. And you can't know if anybody else is foreknown. See, you don't have the foreknowledge of God. I don't have the foreknowledge of God. So you can't claim that you're the very elect of God, that God foreknew you and you're going to, you're just, you got it made because you don't know that. But God bases his choices on your choices. His foreknowledge is just knowledge of your choices. He's not going to force you to do his will. He's not going to force you to disobey him. So you keep your eyes on yourself. You, you keep... Uh, making sure that you don't rebel against God, doubt God. Watch yourself. Guard your heart. Now, God told King Solomon, and he wrote this. Solomon actually wrote it, but it was the Spirit of God talking to him. Keep your heart with all vigilance, Proverbs 4.23. So he wrote it in the book of Proverbs, but Solomon didn't do it. See, his heart, he didn't keep his heart with all diligence. diligence. Uh, God told him, don't marry foreign women, you know, be, they'll uh, turn your heart away from me. But he married, he had 800 wives and 200 concubines. The vast majority of them were foreign women who worshipped idols and begged him to make uh, temples for their idols, which he did. And so he practiced idolatry and died in idolatry. I don't see how Solomon can be in heaven, even though he wrote three books of the Bible. Now, that's astounding. Uh, Jesus appeared to him twice. The Lord appeared to Solomon twice. He wrote three books of the Bible. He died in, in, in rebellion and idolatry. And so the apostle said, Apostle Paul said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You see, if you, if you thought no matter what you did, you couldn't possibly lose it, how could you? How could you have any fear and trembling at all? You'd have a terrible false security. Now, my fourth point is that the apostle Paul knew that he could forfeit salvation in spite of being caught up to heaven in visions and being so powerfully used by the Spirit. See, that's why he, uh, he watched himself. And he said, but I discipline my body and I bring it into subjection lest after I've preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Depending on the translation, uh, I, I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest after I've preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Well, Paul wrote something similar to the Philippians. He said, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this 
are am already made perfect, but I press on to take to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Philippians chapter 3. Hold firm to what we've attained. The resurrected, glorified Christ said in Revelations twice, hold on to what you have. Revelations 2.25 and Revelations 3.11. Now, false grace, lazy grace says, oh, no, we can't hold on because to hold on to something would be a works. We're saved by grace, not by works. Therefore, we can't hold on to anything. So Paul would not be welcome to preach in their churches, you see. They wouldn't let his books be given out <laughs> if they were the chaplain. <laughs> well, Paul would not be welcome to preach in churches where that false grace is trusted as an idol, and Jesus Christ wouldn't be welcome there either. Now, Paul didn't believe that he had unconditional eternal security he had salvation, but he knew he wasn't across the finish line. So he wasn't just going to say, oh, I'll think about the past. God really used me in the past. I did great things in the past. I'll just coast. I'll drift. Uh, I may stray. I may disobey, but I've got it made. No, he was uh, uh, doing exactly what he preached and uh, pressing forward to keep obeying, to keep loving Jesus, to keep close with him knowing that God would never back out, but making sure that he wouldn't back out. Now, my fifth point is we all have the big ifs to overcome. In Revelation, Jesus speaks, To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life. He also said, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot his name from the book of life. Depending on the translation, I will never blot his name from the book of life. Well, you see, your name would have to be in the book of life in order to be blotted out of the book of life. And if he's uh, warning that you've got to overcome and then your name will be safe in the book of life, well, pay attention. Now, uh, here's the four big ifs that Jesus spoke of in John chapter 15. He said, I'm the true vine. My father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. I ask God to prune me so that I'll be even more fruitful. Now, he said, you're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me as a choice as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you're, you are the branches. Now notice verse five, it has an if. Verse five, if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now remember, if you don't bear any fruit, you get cut off. Now, verse six, if you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. That's pretty plain. 
people can refuse to remain in Jesus. They were in him, but they chose to leave. He didn't leave them. Verse 7, if you remain in me, notice another if, if you remain in me, my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. Verse 10, here comes another if, if you keep my commands, <laughs> you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Well, you know, Jesus would not be welcome in many, many churches if he preached that sermon. They'd throw him out as a heretic. Because he's saying, if you don't abide in me, he's giving him the ifs. Now we just need to humble ourselves and say, well, I better pay attention to those ifs. I want to obey him. I want to abide in him. I want to bear fruit. And then he's going to help us do all of that. And it's going to be such a joy that he said, I've told you this, that my joy may be in you. It's, it's so joyful to obey God's commands. I got to throw this in. It's not in my notes, but uh, I read a vision by Annie Scheisler that she had back in the early 1970s in Argentina. And she said that God showed her certain men of God on the earth that were uh, obeying God's commands in a time of great darkness. And they were aided by real powerful, mighty angels, uh, you know, in the spiritual realm. Well, I had read that many times, but it finally got through to me. I'd, I'd been sad over all the darkness coming over our nation because thick darkness is coming over our nation, really, really thick. But when I read that these men were obeying his God's commands in a time of thick darkness, I thought, well, really, that's all I've ever wanted is just to obey his commands. I just love to obey. So even if there's darkness, I'll be able to obey and I'll be able, I'll, I'll link up with those great and mighty powerful angels that are going to help me obey. And when I obey, there's going to be fruit and there's going to be joy in spite of all this darkness. Now, I wish I could make all the darkness in the world go away and present the earth to God and say, here, Lord, I fixed it up for you. It won't grieve your heart so bad now because I made all the darkness go away. Well, I can't do that, but I can obey him. And I can link up by his spirit, you know, with his Holy Spirit and link up with those holy angels. And he's gonna help me obey him no matter how dark it gets. So although the darkness is, is sad, if we just behold the darkness, we can get really bummed out. But if we say, okay, Lord, it's dark, but uh, I love to obey. What's your command? Let's do it. Let's link up with the Holy Spirit, all those powerful angels. And uh, Lord, uh, let's let your light shine down here in the darkness. Praise God. Well, now, I, I want to go back a little bit. Jesus, 
would not be welcomed, you know, in many churches because he says that we must obey his commands to remain in his love and that if we do not remain in his love, we'll be cut off and thrown into the fire as dead branches. But unconditional eternal security, the once saved, always saved, takes away the ifs, doesn't it? Lazy false grace says, if we have, it puts in a different if, if we have to keep even one command, then we're working for salvation and therefore all obedience is optional. Well, that teaching is of the devil. What could be more demonic than a teaching that makes obeying the Lord Jesus Christ optional? Here's my sixth major point. If we could not back out of salvation, then Jesus would not have admonished us to remain in him. To remain means we are in him, but we could leave. We still have a choice. He won't be leaving us. He didn't say, if I remain in you. No, he's, he's put down too big of a deposit to back out. We've got to remain in him. Now, again, in Matthew 7, Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I'll tell you plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Not to say that he never knew them doesn't mean they were never saved or that they never trusted him for salvation or that they were never his people. It means he never foreknew them. He looked ahead and saw that they would betray him. And so he used them. He was friends with them, but he knew in the end what they would do. And so when they turned from doing righteousness and became workers of iniquity and didn't repent and died in that kind of sin and rebellion, then they joined the many preachers that are in hell. You see, that's a great crowd of preachers. That's a great crowd of preachers. They were the ones that preached and prophesied and cast out the demons and uh, did great mighty works in the name of Jesus, but they turned. Now, lazy grace proponents always say, well, those people were never saved in the first place, but friend, if you're not saved, you can't cast out demons. You have to be submitted to Christ. Submit to God and resist the devil. See, you can't resist the devil if you aren't submitted to Christ. So these preachers, once upon a time, were right with God but they didn't remain in him. Can you see that? They didn't remain in him. And so they were among the branches that were cut off and cast into the fire to be burned because they went into rebellion or idolatry, died in that condition, trusting a false grace that exempted them from obedience, from humility, from loving other Christians. Now, Paul wrote to the Christians in Rome, you will say then that branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted. But they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Don't, don't be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they'll be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again, Romans chapter 11. Well, we've got to continue in God's kindness. God will never cut off a living branch. He only cuts off the dead ones who, by their own choice, 
back out of salvation through rebellion and idolatry. Now, my seventh point is we've got to understand the blood covering of Jesus. And Colossians 1, 21 through 23 is a scripture you all ought to memorize. Now, Paul wrote, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusations if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. You see, you could move out from under the blood of Christ. You have, but if you'll continue under the blood, then when God looks at you, you look like you're perfect, without a blemish. In other words, he doesn't see a wart, a mole, a wrinkle, a, a, an age spot. That's pretty cool. And, uh, and uh, you're free from the accusation of the devil. See, it won't stick to you because you're under the blood. Now, Paul was writing that to Christians, of course. And uh, when we trust in Christ's atoning death, then we're covered by that blood and we're holy in God's sight. So that means the blood of Jesus covers you like an umbrella. And uh, if you stay under the umbrella, you don't get wet. Well, the same way, if you stay under the blood of Christ, uh, God will see you holy in his sight. You'll look like you're already perfect. But you must not move from that hope. Now, to move out from under the blood, you move out from under the blood of Christ through either rebellion or idolatry or both. So rebellion is the opposite of repentance and idolatry is the opposite of faith in Christ. It's choosing some other God to be first place. In other words, listen to this. The blood of Christ covers imperfect obedience and makes you appear perfect. You, you need to know that. Otherwise, if, 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 see, if you think you could just lose your salvation over the little tiniest thing, then you're afraid to chew your gum. I, man, I threw, my, I threw my gum out the window. It's probably stuck on the highway somewhere. Somebody will probably come along the sidewalk and step in it, and, and I'll lose my salvation. No, you, so you, can't, uh, you can't lose your salvation accidentally. It has to be real rebellion or where you'd know that you're choosing a different God. So once I was going to lead a, a worship song on my guitar, and this song was new, it had a lot of inverted chords and many rapid changes, and I was trying to play all of them. I probably wouldn't have needed to, but I wanted to play it perfect for the Lord. And I, I told him that uh, I would like to pretend those chords were his commands and that I'd love to obey all his commands. So, you know, I practiced and... The day I led that song, I missed some of those chords. And afterwards, I was just dejected. And I said, Lord, I didn't do it perfect. Because I see, I wanted to do it perfect. But God spoke to me and said, I heard it perfect. Now, that's a wonderful example of how the blood of Christ covers it. And so that gives us freedom to obey. We're not earning anything. We're just having a blast obeying Jesus. We love to obey him. And what if we don't do it perfect? Well, I doubt that any of us would do it perfect. And that's why we all need the blood of Christ. Because then God sees us holy in his sight without a blemish. We look perfect. He can even hear it perfect. <laughs> See it perfect. Hear it perfect. 
I'm so appreciative of the blood of Christ that makes me holy in God's sight because, you know, I try to do it perfectly, but uh, I'm very conscious that I just can't do it as perfect as I want to. I'll, I'll keep trying, but, uh, you know, I think the Bible says aim for perfection. Well, we... We want to do just as very best we can and at the same time be so thankful for the covering blood of Christ. See, now I'm not fearful. If, if, if you thought that God would just get mad and hit you with a big heavenly fly swatter every time you didn't do a command perfectly, why would you want to learn a new command? You say, oh, I don't want to even know those commands because every time I don't do them perfect, God will smash me. But see, I don't feel that way because I'm covered by the blood of Christ. So I'm eager to find out new commands because there's so much fun to do. And uh, I love obeying. And then when I don't do it perfect, see, like giving out tracks is a wonderful thing to go into a store and, and say, hey, before I leave, I'd like to give you a present. I've got some of these little sermons that are, you know, in these classy little brochures and they open like a book and they open like a poster and they're all about how much God loves you, but they're not about any certain church. And I just love to give them to people. Almost everybody's going to smile and thank me. They do. And, and I keep doing that. But sometimes I'll go into a store and I'll forget to take the tracks with me. And when I leave, I could think, oh boy, I didn't do it perfect. I didn't do it right. Oh boy, I'm, a, I, I'm condemned. But see, I know that I know that I just don't do everything perfect. I'll just remember to do it right next time by God's grace. So I'm depending on the blood of Jesus, but I am not turning it into a license for sin. That's where the false grace people uh, really make the bad error is to think that uh, everything's, everything's fine. You know, you can just do any old thing. All right, well, let's uh, pick it up again. I just spoke extemporaneously there for a while. If you had eternal salvation right now, you'd have complete salvation. But the Apostle Peter says, Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept for you in heaven, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, if you hope for something, it means you don't have it right now. So this complete salvation, the complete resurrection from the dead, that's where you have eternal salvation. Nobody can back out after that. That's... Uh, you see, but down here, we, we're, we're living in the hope of that, okay? And uh, we're being kept and shielded by God's power uh, until that coming salvation to be revealed at the last time. We're shielded under the powerful blood of Christ. And if we remain in him and don't move from the hope held out in the gospel, like Paul wrote to the Colossians, then we're going to experience the full salvation, a resurrected body like unto the body of the glorified Christ. We'll enter into eternal security, a salvation that we can never back out of. Now, the writer of Hebrews, which we believe was the Apostle Paul, wrote these words, If we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sin is left, 
but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Now notice he didn't say they, he said if we deliberately keep on sinning. In other words, Christians can deliberately keep on sinning after they've received the knowledge of the truth. That means after they've accepted Jesus as their savior. But if they deliberately keep on sinning, they're in rebellion and no sacrifice is left for them. See, the blood of Christ isn't going to cover that. Just fearful expectation of judgment and raging fire. If we deliberately keep on sinning, well, that's talking to real believers who've received Jesus. It's the very definition of rebellion. If we sin, the Holy Spirit's going to convict us. He's going to warn us. He's going to remind us of the words of Jesus, and we're given time to repent. Now, in Revelations, Jesus said, I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she was unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. Now, that woman was the Jezebel. Uh, she was a, named a, as a Christian, but she was in both rebellion and idolatry, teaching Christians to practice sexual immorality is rebellion, eating food sacrificed to idols was idolatry. She was given time to repent, and those who followed her ways, uh, they could still repent, but God was warning them, if you don't, uh, you'll be cast into eternal intense suffering. Now, my eighth point is, I pray that God will keep me as his very own. See, I know that God's not gonna back out of salvation, he put down too big a deposit. But I know that I could back out and suppose, you know, I realize I could succumb to some temptation. What if I was faced with martyrdom? I could give in to fear and deny the Lord. So I don't assume that I'm just so righteous that I wouldn't need God's help. Now, one time I had a great crisis in my life and I felt like I was falling into the destruction of my faith and the destruction of my ministry. And I I just drove for a little drive, parked the car, got in the back seat of the car, curled up almost in a fetal position, and I prayed, oh God, I can't keep it together anymore. I'm falling. I said, but if you can still keep me, I still want to be kept. Well, God did keep me, and he's kept me in all the years since. But what that did for me was I realized I was just like Peter. I used to judge Peter because Peter said, if I even have to die with you, I'll never disown you. And he was so sure of his devotion. But then when push came to shove, he denied Jesus three times. Now, Jesus had told him, this is what you're going to do. But I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith will not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. So I just tell the Lord, Lord, you know, I got the heart like Peter had. I don't think I'll ever betray you. or, But why don't you just go ahead and keep me as your very own, <laughs> like you did for Peter. <laughs> you prayed for him. Uh, all right. Now, the people who rebel and who go into idolatry really don't want to be kept. Paul wrote, they claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. Titus 1.16. Jude wrote, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling or from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen. Well, read Jude uh, verse 24 and 25 and notice it says, Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and present you 
blameless. That's why you want to pray, Lord, keep me. You're able to. I want you to. Let's do it. We should also pray that God will keep giving us more character virtues by his grace. Paul wrote, for the, uh, Peter wrote this, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, to goodness knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness mutual affection, to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they'll keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they've been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you'll never stumble, and you'll receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, you know, the lazy grace says, what? Make every effort to confirm my calling and election? Well, yes, that's what you should do. And uh, you see, the grace that God gives you is going to give you power. Hallelujah. Now, again, Peter wrote, Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position. Now, we're secure in Christ, just like if we were on an observation deck on the top of a skyscraper and suppose the deck had a big uh, railing around it to protect people so they could view but not fall off. Now, suppose a person wanted to take a selfie of themselves, so they climb up on the railing, taking a selfie, and they fall from their secure position. See, well, God warns us that we could be carried away into the air of the lawless and fall from our secure position. If we had eternal, unconditional security right now, then we could not fall. So Peter wasn't preaching lazy grace. Now notice this, grace has power that empowers us. Peter says, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. Well, we, we do this by growing in character virtues. So take a tree, the life of the tree is in that little green growth ring just under the bark, and all the past growth is dead wood while all the life of the tree is in the growth ring. Now, if the tree is not growing, guess what? It's dead, and all of its past, no matter how glorious, is just dead. And likewise, Christians can allow their faith to become dead. And that's why Jesus said to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds, he says, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I'll come like a thief and you'll not know at what time I'll come to you. So false lazy grace says you don't need to repent. You don't need to hold fast because if you held fast, that would be a work and we're saved by grace, not by works. So thus not even the resurrected Christ of glory would be allowed to preach in their churches. Now here's my ninth point. Always remember that real grace is God's activated power. That's a wonderful definition for grace. See how grace and power always go together. Grace is never just a license to sin. Grace is never an excuse for spiritual laziness. Grace is never a substitute for obedience or works of faith. 
Paul wrote, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and in insults and in hardships and persecutions and difficulties for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. So Paul is equating, uh, uh, you know, they're interchangeable, grace and power there. God said to him, you know, I'm not going to uh, take away all this trouble and persecution that's coming against you, but I'm going to mix grace in with it and turn all your problems into blessings and miracles. Now notice, God was going to give him grace and it empowered him. It made him strong. It wasn't an excuse to live in weakness and compromise. And so Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Now notice the grace of God is a hard worker. <laughs> grace has a lot of power. Grace isn't lazy. Now this grace loves to obey God, loves to bear fruit. Now it empowered Paul to work harder than all the other apostles. And it was the grace of God itself that was working. But you see, false grace not only excuses complete laziness, it justifies ignoring the admonitions to forgive and ignoring the admonition to hold on to what we have or to work hard as working for the Lord, like Paul said. I believe it's Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. Paul also wrote, as God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. Now, how could someone receive God's grace in vain? This means they could receive it and then lose it. Do you understand? Don't receive the grace of God in vain. In other words, don't receive it and then lose it. Now, Jesus said to believers in Thyatira who had not followed after this Jezebel-type false prophetess, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. Now, lazy grace, false grace says what? If I have to hold on to anything, that means it's a work. I'm saved by grace, not by works. I didn't do anything to earn salvation. I can't do anything to lose it. But then you see, you'd stop growing and you'd have dead faith. And you only have grace by faith. And faith has to be alive and active or it's dead. You can stop abiding and be a dead branch. You can keep on sinning and refuse repentance. And nothing but raging fire that consumes enemy of God will be your portion. Now, if you have real grace, you'll be empowered to hold on. You won't receive God's grace in vain. You'll let it empower you to do God's will. Now, remember Jesus said, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. I love doing God's will. So I'd like to pray this scriptural prayer. Oh, Lord, fill me with the knowledge of your will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And while I'm doing that, I'm thanking God for the blood covering of Jesus that sees me holy in his sight without a blemish and free from accusation. I'm going to enjoy my secure position, but I'm not going to take selfies on the railing. Rather, by God's grace, I'm going to add to my faith the character virtues of Jesus. I'll ask God to keep me as his very own forever. So uh, I'll be like Jude said in Jude 24, uh, I'll be presented before his throne uh, with great joy. I'm never going to be spiritually lazy, but with God's grace helping me, I'm going to work for Jesus with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. 
Now, Jude wrote, For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. These are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license of immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Now, notice they practice both rebellion, unrepentant sin, and they deny the lordship of Jesus, meaning that they're idolaters. They've put something else first. They may preach Christ. Paul wrote, They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. Now, my prayer is that the Lord Jesus will cleanse his temple, the body of 